Thanks for joining us for the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Peter Singer, Strategist and Senior Fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, Deputy Editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's new section on security and privacy in the digital age. We think the most important and most interesting part of the cybersecurity story is the people behind the keyboard. So on the Cybersecurity Podcast, we'll interview key leaders and thinkers in the field, going beyond the headlines to talk to some of the most pressing trends and newest ideas. And we want to thank Arizona State for sponsoring this podcast. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Chris Valasek. He is now a security leader at Uber's Advanced Technology Center. You may also recognize him from the viral video of him and his partner demonstrating a live hack of a Jeep Cherokee with a wired reporter inside it, work that forced a recall of some 1.4 million Chrysler vehicles. But first, we're joined by Congressman Will Hurd. He's a freshman in Congress, but he's taken on a variety of key leadership roles, including as chairman of the IT subcommittee on oversight and government reform. Part of why is his fascinating background. He was a senior advisor with a security firm helping to defend against digital attacks in the private sector. He was also an undercover CIA officer in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And now we're here in his office on Capitol Hill to learn more about his priorities for digital security, what it's like to be a rare cybersecurity guru in Congress. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you've staked out a reputation as the go-to guy on Capitol Hill for cybersecurity issues. But that's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, it must get tiring <laughs> helping to change everybody else's passwords, you know, helping to explain very technical terms like cyber walls. Um, but, you know, in all seriousness, do you see a cybersecurity awareness gap in politics? And if so, what can we do to raise the level of awareness and understanding? You know, I, I made a joke. I was at uh, South by Southwest, you know, the conference um, that happens annually in, in Texas and in Austin. And, and I had a room a bunch of IT entrepreneurs. And I said, you know, amongst all you IT entrepreneurs, I'm in the upper bottom third of people that understand technology. But in Washington, D.C., I'm in the top one percent. Um, the, the thing that I've realized up here is that people recognize the threat. People recognize um, this is something that we need to focus on. They may not be. Do you would only interrupt? You say they recognize the threats, but do they understand the diversity of them? I, I, I don't think so. Uh, when you talk about you know uh, APTs or advanced persistent threats, um, you know you always mention China, but China is really about cyber espionage, right? Um, and then when people say Russia, Russia is really it's Russian organized crime that are looking to try to steal information and monetize it. When you look at um, the Iranians or the North Koreans, um, they have very different interests in, in attacking us. And so, so the understanding the difference of the threat, um, I think people are learning. Um, but pe- but mo- most of my colleagues um, are appreciative that there's a couple of us I'm here in Washington now that have a, a, a good understanding of this topic and can try and try to drive us in a, in a place that we need to be. And how about how do we raise the level for the broader membership? It starts with the hearing structure, right? You know, this, this you know, I, I look at my role as the chairman of the IT uh, subcommittee with an oversight and government reform as shining a light on, on a lot of these issues and then working with the authorizing committee and the appropriators to, to ultimately fix them. And people are being asked a lot lot about this. I represent a very large part of Texas from San Antonio, El Paso, 29 counties, a lot of rural Texas. And and one of the questions I always get asked is about cybersecurity. And a lot of folks don't necessarily know the what they should be asking, but they know it's an issue. They know it's a problem. And so being able to talk about it, talking about what is 
is good digital hygiene. Um, talking about how can the, the different federal agencies make sure that they're following, you know, basic principles um, to protect themselves. It's the OPM hack is a perfect example of making sure that we're doing all the right follow-up from that and using this as an example of why we need to be more mindful of what's going on in the rest of the government. So do you think that there's enough of a dialogue between technologists and members of Congress? And is there anything outside hearings, um, bringing them into the actual hearing room to talk to people that can be done? I think industry is working to educate a lot of members on this topic. There was uh, two bills on cybersecurity that passed the House um, one from Homeland Security, one from, from Hipsty, the House Intelligence Committee. A lot of the reason that those things were passed was because of the conversation between private sector that's dealing with a lot of these issues with privacy groups, making sure that we're protecting our civil liberties and members of Congress. And so, you know, the reason we were able to move those bills is because that dialogue is happening. Um, but it, it never stopped. There can never be enough conversation about this. And I heard that I missed you at the Black Hat Conference in Las Vegas. So uh, tell me about why you went there. Look, I I went to Black Hat. You know, I'd been hearing about it for a long time. I helped start a cybersecurity company where we basically did technical vulnerability assessments, penetration testing. And, you know, this was a great opportunity to go and talk to a lot of very talented, smart people on this issue. And it it was an interesting conversation. I think a lot of folks were shocked that a member of Congress was walking the halls, you know, I made sure to turn my phone off and left it at the hotel. I didn't want to go on the, the wall of sheep. And one of the things that they were all telling me about is that, you know, you need to be focusing on protecting that middle and lower um, group of folks in, in the line, right? When you look at the target um, hack, people talk about target was hacked. Well, their HVAC provider was hacked, which provided access into Target. Um, and and these third, you know, the, these third-party service providers are, are a lot of times the the targets, and we need to be educating them. They don't have the same level of sophistication that some of these large Fortune 500 companies have. But on a national level, when people talk about cybersecurity protection in Congress, a lot of the focus is on these proposals to increase sharing of cyber threats between the government and the private sector. So. As many members of Congress seem pretty fixated on this idea, it's been pretty controversial among many companies and privacy advocates. What's your take on this? So right now in Washington, cybersecurity means information sharing. And it's making sure the federal government is sharing as much information as it possibly can with the private sector for the private sector to protect themselves. And and a lot of those issues between privacy groups and industry um, was, was sorted out in those bills that we have passed. Now there's a, another debate in the Senate. The Senate thinks that the NSA should play a little bit more of an influential role than DHS. And I think that's the, the divide between the, the House and the Senate. But I, I think we can get through those things. But this is the preface to the book. This is not the first chapter. You know, having an infrastructure in where we can share information. And then the next step we got to have is what information are we sharing? And how quickly can we share? And is it actionable? And is, and is it worth sharing? And so the, these are the kinds of conversations that need to go. But we need to have the framework that has liability protection in it that allows sharing not only between the federal government and private sector, but between two different companies so that they can be helping them each other uh, protect themselves. So you use that phrase to protect them. Themselves. That's one of the new, more controversial questions in the field, which is hackback. Mm-hmm. Um, so, should companies 
have the right to hack back what you're thinking on this there are a lot of of conversation more conversation as we go on about this topic and, and i'd call it offensive defense right and you know uh, part of this is we haven't even solved this problem for the federal government you know so trying to say that we, we're going to fix this for for the private sector if north korea would launch a missile in san francisco we know how we would respond. The North Koreans would know how we would respond. That's part of the reason they don't do it. It's a deterrence. And so uh, we need to have a, a conversation about what is one of those red lines that require a certain response and what should that response be. And a lot of times that response is going to be some kind of offensive capability. So there needs to be a much larger conversation. Um, do you, gonna, do you, I'm sure there's a listener right now working at one of these companies going, that's great. And, and we we need this conversation, but you just put your finger on federal government's not ready. So in this interim period, should I and my own company have the right to go back? And they're probably also saying, hold it. We thought you were from Texas, you know, uh, in, in the wild, wild west before the laws there. Don't I have this this own capacity? OK, so let me use an example. Let's say the Iranians take over a oil company in Texas and use their digital infrastructure to attack another company in the United States. So that company that's being attacked, do they have the ability to, to hack back another U.S. company? You know, th there are so many civil liberty issues at play here that have to be worked out before we have any conversation about allowing someone to do that. So, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that we can protect our civil liberties and our digital infrastructure at the same time. Those must always be our, our twin goals. And, you know, these are serious conversations and it requires serious thought. And we haven't had those conversations to a point where we can say, you know, sorry, uh, you know, and, and look, you know, I'd tell that company that's being attacked, make sure you're following the basic principles of digital hygiene and you're going to probably protect yourself better than what you are now. And you're actually achieving deterrence, not through the Cold War meaning, but the idea of deterrence by denial. Absolutely. Another tool that the government has at its disposal is sanctions and sanctions against China in particular is a very hot topic as the Chinese president is visiting D.C. this month. So what do you think? about that idea of sanctioning companies or entities that are benefiting from the theft of American trade secrets? I don't think this administration has a great track record of drawing red lines and then enforcing those red lines. Um, but this is, you know, us in China, we're frenemies. Right? Our, our, our two economies are, are, are completely linked, um, but they are doing things um, that they shouldn't be doing against our digital infrastructure. That's why I think it's very important to say if these types of activities are happening, this is going to be the response. And it may be a digital response. It may be a, a response like putting sanctions on certain entities or companies involved in that. So we should be looking at this because that's going to be deterrence and kind of the old model. And, and those are absolutely important. I think it's a great time to have these conversations um, with these upcoming visits. So would you get behind a raft of sanctions if that was what the administration did decide to do? The devil's in the details. What is the type of behavior that we that require the sanctions? What are the types of sanctions? How would they be implemented? You know, this is not a, a frivolous decision. This is an incredibly important decision that has impacts on, on world markets. And so this needs to be thoughtful. This needs to be discussed before we do it. But the, the concept in general I get it. I understand it. I think it's a good tool that we should be having in our toolkit to further protect our digital infrastructure. So Sarah outed you as someone with an intelligence background. And this comes in interesting in two ways, because if you go to the OPM episode, we've had uh, former senior intelligence officials basically make the distinction that you did between 
intellectual property theft versus espionage and say that this episode is not so much a uh, shame on China versus a shame on us for not protecting such important information. And this hits the second way, which is in all likelihood, your background information is now like mine in Beijing. So let's focus in on the OPM side of it and the other agencies. What are the things that we need to put in place so this doesn't happen again? Well, you know, uh, encrypting data at rest, you know, that's something very basic. You don't have the way this person got into this information was because the permissions that this user was given were were completely wrong. You know, I, I have a lot of folks that come in front of the subcommittee and say, we need more money. Well, you don't always need more money to review the permissions of your user to make sure that you can't gain access to things you shouldn't gain access to. So those are some of the basic things that should have been happening in OPM and should be happening across the rest of our federal agencies. Are you satisfied with the result of the so-called cyber sprint to try and implement some of this? Um, I, I think the cyber sprint was a was a positive thing. Um, I, I think um, that, that it has helped improve the defenses of a lot of agencies um, over these last few months. A lot more work needs to be done. We're going to be looking at how after this OPM hack and and with the former head of OPM basically getting fired, every agency head should have gone and looked at all their former inspector general reports, their GAO reports, and said, what are those things that we're we're deficient and let's fix them? And we're going to be pulling those people in front of our our subcommittee and asking the same 15 questions of how you have you done the basics. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, protecting against a zero day attack is really hard. A zero day is something that we've never seen before, but it's unacceptable to not be prepared and defend against known problems. So outside the policy responses um, on the part of the government, just to pick up from where Peter left off, how did you feel when you heard about the OPM breach on a personal level? I mean, did it cross your mind that your very personal information or background security clearance information was is possibly in the hands of the Chinese right now? Look, um, the Chinese and the Russians know a whole lot about me from my days in the, in the CIA. Um, but w- one of the things that was so egregious to me is that OPM never said, I'm sorry. OPM never said, my bad. And that is what's outrageous. And we still don't know, have everybody that's been potentially impacted been notified? And we'll be doing another hearing uh, on this topic because when you look at the form, one of the forms that you use in the background investigation, it's like a couple hundred pa- uh, a hundred or so pages. And there are people that if you had a security clearance and your neighbors were interviewed, your neighbor's social security and details were included, that was in, in this document that was taken. So have they been notified? If you were married, your wife's information was there, and let's say you got divorced, was that divorced spouse notified of what happened? And so so the number of details that are in these things, we're still trying to get understanding of that and making sure that all the right folks have been notified. Something that is related to this is, of course, encryption, and you mentioned it earlier as part of uh, the ways that OPM could have protected its own data, but also companies like Apple and Google have also moved to uh, increase the encryption by default in their consumer devices. Of course, this also comes at a time when there's a pretty steady drumbeat of data breaches in the private sector. So as someone who's worked on both the private sector side um, and cybersecurity and on the intelligence side, what do you think about law enforcement's you know, complaints that they're having a hard time accessing this strongly encrypted data? 
encryption is a good thing. It needs to be encouraged. It needs to be used. And this notion that you can build a backdoor in encryption is not technically feasible, right? If you build a backdoor, a large for the portion computer, of our audience just went, "Amen." Yeah. Look, if, if you if you if you build a backdoor into encryption and give the backdoor key to a good guy, then the bad guys will get access to it. So this concept of going dark. Um, look, I. If you would have asked me, so so I joined the CIA in, in October of 2000. I was in during 9-11. I was the dude in the back alleys at 4 o'clock in the morning in India, Pakistan, Afghanistan. You know, if you would have told me on September 12, 2001, that there would not be another attack on our homeland for 14 years, I would have said you were crazy. Right? And the reason there hasn't been one is because our men and women in the intelligence community, in law enforcement, in the military, in the diplomatic corps that are operating every single day to protect us. So I recognize the, the important role that, that law enforcement FBI is playing. However, they have not been able to articulate use cases where encryption has prevented them from going forward on a uh, on a case. And, and part of this is the issue of attribution. I don't need the details of a plain text message to stop a bad guy from doing something bad. And if you know not every not every bad guy is Lex Luthor and you know saying that they're gonna have some plain text message that says the bomb is gonna go off at this place at this time, you know, we haven't seen those cases. So so what the way we're gonna solve this problem is with industry and law enforcement sitting down to talk about in what cases are we having problems and how when we have a legal document that can gain access to communications from a judge, how can we do that in a way that is helpful to law enforcement but doesn't degrade the security of existing infrastructure? So you don't believe that law enforcement is going dark at all, it sounds like? Um, is this causing problems? Yes. But is this preventing Is this preventing us from catching a bad guy or stopping someone? We haven't seen those cases. This is a huge problem for law enforcement. This is a huge problem from district attorneys across the country. This is a problem for local PDs, local police departments. But the, the way we, we have to protect our civil liberties at the same time as, as finding a solution to this problem. And the solution to this problem is not forcing a backdoor or weakening the encryption of devices. Well, and some of this comes back to companies' responsibilities, too. I mean, do you think that it's reasonable to ask companies to redesign systems, potentially, in order to have these warrants be able to get the data that they're seeking? I think there is a way to find a technical solution to the problem. The first step is to clearly define what the problem is. And, you know, we had a hearing um, on, on this topic and some of the cases they were using, there was there was 50 other ways to solve that problem. So for me, this is about having us let's sit down, let's have a a conversation on what is the specific problem that we've encountered? How do we solve that and then work together on solving that where we, again, protect our our civil liberties, um, that companies and private sector is able to continue to use the latest tools to protect their customers and we solve law enforcement's problem. I think we can we can ha- we can do that, but it's going to take a cool cool heads sitting down having a thoughtful conversation. So you have a, a utterly fascinating background and, and unique in a lot of different ways. But I think one of the interesting is your cross between experience in cybersecurity and electoral politics. And we know that there were uh, hacks and breaches in previous campaigns. 
what do you see potentially playing out in this space in terms of the actual cross between electoral politics and cybersecurity in 2016? Do you see a major campaign getting hacked? Or what, what, are the, what are the dynamics of it when you see these things coming together? Well, I, I hope these major campaigns have, rec- have, have learned from you know, previous issues and previous problems and are designing their organizations in such a way that they are, are protecting their infrastructure. I think part of that is also what do you well, what are you putting down you know, in in, a, in an area that could possibly be taken you know taken advantage of? You know, when I was in the CIA and you're going to meet a um, very sensitive um, asset, you don't text each other, right? Um, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. It's going to be you know when you look at who are those actors that would be targeting someone. I think part of it is it would be digital, you know, it'd be cyber surveillance or cyber intelligence or espionage, um, where they're trying to understand uh, the future leader of the free world's positions on things, who are their key contacts, and what are their plans and intentions when they get into office. I think that would be where the risk would be for some of these campaigns. So we always like to end the podcast on a fun note. And the question we ask people is, what is your favorite cybersecurity pop culture? It can be favorite in terms of a movie, a book, uh, whatnot that you either love or love to hate. You know, I, I loved Alias. That was a great show. I'm a fan of, of Jennifer Gardner, and and I was watching this. Is that why there's that big red ball in the corner <laughs> in here? And we're, there's not one. But, okay. um, no, it's just you know, it was it was it was fun. I was watching it when I was when I was in the CIA, and I think there's a lot of things there that have actually probably come to fruition um, since then. But that that was probably one of my favorites. Is there one that you hate? You know, I get asked a lot about Homeland. Okay, and, what do you think about Homeland? And, and, and I think Homeland is a very interesting drama. But from the first season, when, you know, the idea that a female officer would sleep with an agent is so anathema to what would really happen. That was hard. That was a hard pill to swallow. But I, I will say there was a scene where Saul, that's the guy with the beard, right? Yeah. When Saul picks up um, uh, the, the blonde lady in Mexico and drives her back to being in prison in Washington, D.C., that was a very realistic scene about how you would possibly try to get information out of someone. Um, so that was probably that was probably uh, an interesting part. Um, but, but yeah, I get asked about Homeland a lot, and, and I, I stopped watching after about three or four episodes. All right, well, thank you. You have much more important things to do So um, besides uh, our podcast and watching Homeland. So we very much appreciate you joining us. Excellent. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Congressman Hurd, for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll hear from security pro Chris Velasic. But first, a word from our sponsor. In 2015, U.S. News and World Report ranked Arizona State University as the most innovative university in the nation. That innovation is clear in ASU's approach to real-world challenges like cybersecurity. As part of the university's Global Security Initiative, the ASU Center for Cybersecurity and Digital Forensics approaches the wicked problems of cybersecurity by bringing together collaborative research teams of world-renowned experts across academic disciplines to design solutions for industry and government. One wicked problem the center is also indirectly addressing is developing a new generation of talent for the cybersecurity workforce. 
Here's Nadia Bliss, director of ASU's Global Security Initiative, and Jamie Winterton, director of strategic research at ASU's Cybersecurity Center, discussing how they're building the workers industry and government badly need. This is an incredibly exciting area to be in. I mean, it's kind of being like a superhero if you're working in this in this space. And I think sometimes it doesn't quite come across when people are younger. I think one of the reasons there is a challenge in terms of producing a sufficient number of qualified graduates that's separate from the pipeline is you have to be very flexible, malleable, and adjustable in this space because the landscape is changing constantly. When we talk to our industry partners, they say basically what Nadia's just said is that they're looking for people who are more smart generalists, who are mentally flexible, who are creative problem solvers, not that they need more classes in network theory. So we've developed a program where these students can get a lot more hands-on experience because that's where you develop a lot of these skills. So I think cybersecurity is a lot like gymnastics. You can read all the books on gymnastics you want, Mm -hmm. but once you approach the uneven bars, you'd better have some real, real world practice under your belt or it's not going to go well. And I think that having a cybersecurity position is a lot like that. Cybersecurity is a thread that goes through all industry and government. It's not just Apple and Google that are interested, but it's it's healthcare companies, it's construction companies, it's everybody has this need and there's room for everyone. Find ASU's Global Security Initiative online at globalsecurity.asu.edu. Up next, we have our interview with Chris Velasic. He's just recently started a new job as a security lead at Uber's Advanced Technology Center. But he's also behind the hack of a Jeep Cherokee, demoed live on video as a wired reporter drove that car on the highway. I interviewed him while out in Boston for the Conference on Security of Internet of Things that Passcode co-hosted. We talked about his viral video fame and why he thinks that contributed to the car recall, and how to motivate hackers to turn over security weaknesses they find to companies. Thanks so much for joining us. Really glad to have you on. Thanks for having me. And so you've just started a new job at Uber, but you're here in your semi-official capacity of car hacker extraordinaire. You are one of two researchers who made headlines in recent months for exposing a security weakness in Jeep Chrysler vehicles that forced a recall of some 1.4 million cars. So why don't we start by telling us a little bit about that? How did you decide to hack that car? And were you surprised by all the media attention? So Charlie and I wanted to do research into the remote compromise of a vehicle. And we wanted to make sure that there was no modifications to the car. We didn't tear anything out. Mm -hmm. Um, Just basically you would go buy a car and then you would hack it over the airwaves. Um, And we spent some time looking at cars that had the technology that communicates with the outside world and that had technology in it that we knew controlled physical features. Like if the car could park itself, we figured we could control steering. If the car could brake itself, you know, we figured we can control braking, things like that. So we looked over a bunch of cars and, and especially budgetary constraints. So IOActive bought the, the Jeep for us and then we went hacking about it and I guess the rest is history. We knew it would be a pretty big splash. We thought it would be kind of limited to maybe the automotive and information security space, but it really transcended everything and and was just a news story as opposed to a tech news story. And we've seen this trend in smart cars, essentially, that when there's wireless connectivity and all of these other features that you're talking about, it seems like the cars would be inherently more vulnerable. Can you tell us a little bit about the attack surfaces in cars in general these days and whether you feel the auto industry has been taking 
taking the threats of hacking seriously enough. Anytime you add more code and connectivity, there increases the chance of vulnerability, right? Humans are bad at writing secure code. I don't know if uh, enough steps have been taken because I don't have, you know, really any internal insight into these companies. I think stories like the ones that were published about Charlie and I just recently will help push people in the right direction to realize that it's not just a fantasy. Like these things aren't theoretical. We showed that we could hack a vehicle that hadn't been altered in any way over the airwaves to physically control it. So I think that there just needed to be a reality check and a concrete example of what could happen. Well, what was your experience like with them? Did you find that they were willing to change quickly enough or was it only after the media stories were published about this that these things started to gain traction? I don't know. They were, FCA was fine to work with. They were professional. They never once really threatened us to to do anything. Mm -hmm. You know, who's to say what happens if the media story didn't blow up as big as it did. Um, but that's just speculation. Uh, hopefully that everyone can learn a lesson that when, you know, people like us submit vulnerabilities to them, they should look at them and, and act accordingly. And the media attention certainly does play a role in this. I mean, you've seen people who have been a little bit upset that the reporter was actually on a highway and that was what the video was about. And what do you make of that? What is the line between drawing needed attention to a cybersecurity issue and a dangerous stunt? It's a line that everyone who's doing hacking of things walks Mm -hmm. and uh, you take into account um, the probability of something bad happening uh, to what you're doing. I think ours got a little blown out of proportion because it got so much coverage and and everything, but essentially what we did is make it so you took your foot off the acceleration pedal, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't do any of the steering testing or braking testing or anything that we thought was truly dangerous anywhere but a closed parking lot. So why wasn't the parking lot enough? I think people needed to relate to the subject. And if you're in a parking lot with cones and a helmet on, people think it's fake, even if it is real. But if you put it in a situation in which anyone could be in on any given day, Mm -hmm. then people relate to it. And the relatability, I I think had a lot to do with how much attention it gathered. And so do you have any sympathy for companies on these issues? I mean, do you feel like it might be difficult for them to disclose these things? Do you think that they feel there might be a target on their back or I mean, put yourself in their shoes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're concerned with their brand and their brand image is a lot to them and, and their consumer confidence is a lot to them. So, you know, you wouldn't expect them to come out and talk about all their flaws. No one does, right? Politicians don't talk about all the bad stuff they did until someone points it out. Um, so you can't expect them to do it. But, you know, we're hoping that stories like these and examples like these push people to try to be more proactive about the subject. And so what's the role for security professionals in this? I and mean, we're here up in Boston at a conference on the Internet of Things that Passcode is partnering with Security Ledger on. And you've just talked about how the InfoSec community is the shepherd. They're the shepherds of the Internet. So I mean, what is their role here? And is there any tension between people who think that security researchers are just trying to tear things down that would otherwise work and actually making those systems more resilient? Yeah, I think there's a clear separation between the people that break and the people that build. You have to have a certain mindset to break things and you have to have a certain mindset to design and build things. What I was saying is that I want researchers to research things and and publish and and show people what's broken so that they can fix it. Um, I I hope that the creators of these things don't look at it as a target of their back, but basically people trying to help them make better products. I mean, at least that's what I'm trying to do. But not everybody is happy about these types of things, as you're mentioning. 
happening. And some security professionals complain that certain laws, uh, parts of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, for instance, that might limit security research like this, or people might be in a legally gray zone for tinkering with devices that they, even the ones that they own, to figure out weaknesses. And what do you make of this? And, and have you ever felt any pressure from laws not to do the research that you're doing? Yeah. Um... You know, I've never even thought about those laws when I start looking into something. I look into something because it's interesting, and um, and I and I really go from there. So you know, it's not something that ever concerned me. Maybe it concerns other people. I think everyone worries about something different. But when you're doing something that could be considered by some to be different. Um, you're always going to have disagreements on what should be done, how should it be done, and who should do it. So you're never going to please anyone, everybody. You're only going to please some people. And so you also have talked about how um, Fiat Chrysler essentially took all the blame for um, a problem that wasn't 100% their fault. Why don't you walk us through that and sort of the blame game and who should be responsible when you hacked the car? Yeah, I mean, I don't think any one party deserves all responsibility, mm -hmm. um, right? But Fiat Chrysler buys parts from their T1 suppliers, and in this case, it was Harman. Mm -hmm. And uh, they also connect those devices via their telecommunications carrier, which was Sprint. And, and they each could have done something to make make this difficult or impossible to do. But, you know, I, really everyone says it's a Chrysler issue or more specifically, they say it's a Jeep issue, right? So I think the people that supply them parts need to invest more in security. And I think the, the OEMs who buy these parts need to work with their carriers to ensure that their carriers know, here's the things that are going to be on their network. And um, maybe you could, you know, segment the network or lock it down more. And if they all work together, we're going to have a more secure ecosystem of all these things than instead of leaving the burden on one party. And we all know about the recall, but what about Uconnect and, and what's the role that they should be playing on the supply chain and has anybody heard from them since the media reports? Yeah, I don't know, right? So we're, we're not privy to all the intercommunications that went on between all these companies, but maybe, you know, I, we don't know for a fact if there's any other Uconnects that aren't in FCA cars and that aren't on Sprint's network. Maybe there's in different cars that we don't know about. That's for the tier one to figure out and, and protect their customers if they see something like this and they want to get it patched everywhere. So one um, of my favorite things about your presentation at Black Hat was actually the description. There was only one of, favorite thing? One of my many favorite things uh, <laughs> was the description of the outtakes or the bloopers, so to speak, in your, in your hack, when the stuff that you were doing to the cars actually made it totally useless and you had to essentially return it in order to carry on figuring out how to break it. So tell me a little bit behind the scenes about what that was like and, you know, the steps to actually carry out what you, you know, not necessarily on the technical level, but how did you get to the point where you could actually exploit this and, and how technically difficult that was? Uh, so which part are you talking about? Are you part of talking about where we're trying to do testing to see if the brakes would stop something? Or are you yeah. talking about when we would like brick the head unit and have to take it back to the repair shop? I just remember Charlie, maybe it was, who was saying, you know, oh, sorry, the car's broken. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, so we would, you know, attempt to reprogram the, the chip in the head unit that would do physical control stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you mess it up, the head unit no longer works. But luckily, the car was under warranty, so you could go there and say, like, oh, my head unit doesn't work, and that's not right. a lie. It doesn't work, and luckily, they'd replace it for you. And so they really had no idea what was... Uh, I mean, if they, if they would have you know, known who Charlie is, I don't know if it made any difference, but who knows. 
And so just to zoom out for broader lessons uh, about the Internet of Things, you're into car hacking, of course, but uh, what is the next frontier in security or within the IoT? I mean, the most unplowed ground of things that need to be explored for weaknesses. I don't know. Everything. Anything is being connected. Yeah. I want I want people looking at everything. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be as you know high impact as a car. I mean, anything that we're starting to link up, especially if the technology is old technology. Uh, the reason some of this stuff is possible is because the technology to control physical systems of cars is decades old, but now it just has this outside influence. And the same can probably be said with you know so many other things. And so, what's at stake if people don't consider security as they're designing products? You know. You you have continued insecure devices, continued breaches, and, and really, who knows? I think only time will tell. It's still really early stages of all this stuff, right? People are now just really getting into it. And for people themselves, I mean, are they? do you think that consumers are prepared to download upgrades for their cars or for their fridge or their toaster? And, and what is the cultural impact on people's interactions with these devices? I think we need to learn from people like Microsoft, right? Uh, I don't think Windows Update was effective when you had to go to windowsupdate.microsoft.com. Mm-hmm. But once they made it seamless and transparent to the user, your computer just automatically gets updates and installs them, and your computer restarts, and you're really not any the wiser until you see that your computer restarted. That's how these things need to work. They're going to need updates because code isn't perfect. The updating process should be as seamless as possible for the end user. You guys, when you hacked the car, you did report these vulnerabilities to the company, and I think there's general agreement about the need to find some more institutionalized ways to actually encourage hackers to report the issues that they see to companies so that they can be fixed rather than exploit them or do other things like that. So we actually, on one of our latest episodes, had Katie Masouris from HackerOne talking about bug bounty programs and what is, in your mind, the best way to encourage hackers to actually come forward and report these issues? And is there another way to motivate them that we're not doing now? Well, I'll I'll talk specifically in the automotive space. Mm -hmm. What is hard right now is if you aren't in the know, you don't know who to talk to. Uh, We just happen to know someone at FCA from a prior interaction with them. But if we didn't know, it would be hard to um, get a hold of someone. Well, you can go to security at Microsoft.com and you can go to security at Twitter.com. There's no security at FCA.com that you could say, hey, I have this right. thing. Do you guys want to get it fixed? And, and you know, even though there's bug bounties, I don't think those people have every connection in the world either because it's a new frontier. Maybe companies don't even have a security department then. So it's something complicated right now and there's going to be some growing pains. So would you recommend then having security teams that are just very publicly advertised on websites? Is that a Yeah, absolutely. Way? I, I think that you should have somewhere where it's easy for me to find a way to tell you that something's wrong with your product. Why wouldn't you want people basically doing free quality assurance for you? And so one last question that we ask everybody who comes on the podcast is, what is your favorite description of cybersecurity in fiction? Favorite as in you love it and you watch it or read it all the time, or favorite as in it's so bad that you love to hate it? I don't like computers. I don't like watch sports. I hate computers, all kinds. I just do it because the money is good. Thanks again to Congressman Hurd for a great conversation and to Chris Valasek for joining us this month. And again to Arizona State University for sponsoring this episode. And please join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. You can subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasco.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines. Talk to you in a month.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killa. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.